Good morning. How are you? Merry, Merry Christmas. It's very nice being here. Last weekend I was in Sacramento where they were suffering in cold. So they thought. I was like, well, I used to be like them. Heavy coats when it's 60 degrees. Uh, anyway, my uh, daughter and son-in-law are here. The, we flew back with the grandchildren. That was funny. You forget what it's like to go through an airport with like little children, right? Wanting to head in every direction, go through doors that are locked and all that stuff. So we had fun, but we made it. We landed in Denver and my little twin granddaughter looked out the window and said, Papa, what's all that white stuff? Uh, yeah, get used to that. It's, uh, it's no. Uh, yeah, anyway. And then Amanda and Greg uh, drove here. Greg's going to be on staff uh, first week of uh, January. They drove, drove here uh, on Highway 40, and they got, about, uh, they got near Warrington uh, in the fast lane, and somebody drove them off the freeway. And uh, so they went into deep mud and were stuck for a couple hours until a tow truck came with a highway patrolman and pulled them out. So they almost got here. Uh, they're, they're okay, and the car is okay. Uh, it took about two hours of power washing to take off half the state of Virginia from underneath their car. So anyway, a number of you prayed for them, so I appreciate that. And uh, so things are going well. Uh, if you are visiting here for the first time, we have a welcome booth. I don't know if you saw it to your right when you came in the doors. Uh, some nice uh, people out there would love to greet you. If you haven't checked in, they would love to introduce you to the church, give you some things. Uh, and just uh, just welcome you formally. If you're online, uh, there's an actual button that you can uh, uh, click to say that you're new here, and our people online would love to reach out to you. Uh, with those things in mind, uh, I want to remind you as well, I'm starting an uh, exegetical study of the book of Revelation in January. Uh, you need to sign up uh, if you would like to attend, because I have to give everybody uh, notes uh, that will last for the whole study. Uh, so we need to know how many note packets to give people, all that type of thing. So I think you can sign up today if I remember correctly. So uh, that's the most asked thing I've ever been asked to teach. Uh, and so after 12 years, I, I'm doing it. So if one person shows up, I'll be shocked. So, And it's, I think it says online uh, that I'm going to be doing a study in the apocalypse. Uh, you may not know what that means. Uh, that's another name for the book of Revelation. So... Uh, if, if you're wondering, what is that? Uh, that's Revelation. So anyway, love to have you there. It's going to be from 6.30 to 7.30. We're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, and it's a very eye-opening study, especially in light of the times in which we live. Uh, let's go to the Word of God uh, this Christmas. Uh, God, we open the scriptures today uh, looking at uh, your plan uh, concerning the Messiah and his birth. Uh, and as we uh, dig into these details from Matthew chapter 2, uh, there's darkness there, uh, but there's also great light and great hope, uh, and we thank you that you're the God that brings us hope uh, in seemingly hopeless times. Your star in, of truth uh, shines most brightly, and so we pray we would see that today as we uh, pour over Matthew's words. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I am uh, interested in Matthew chapter 2. If you'd like to turn there, that's where we're going to be uh, this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 2. Uh, Verse 1 is where we're going to start, um, because he gives us a, a chronological uh, concept of what, what happened concerning the birth of Christ. And Matthew was a tax collector, a man that was really into the details. And so he gives us this uh, geopolitical point when you look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, Matthew writes these words, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, uh, we'll stop right there. We're going to be there for quite a while. Uh, because what is important in here is the prepositional phrase, in the days of Herod the king. This is uh, Herod the Great. 
Uh, and we want to focus on Herod the Great because he's going to consume the rest of our study later in a few minutes. Uh, we'll get into uh, Matthew chapter 2 formally. But to really understand the time of the birth of Christ, you have to understand Herod and the times in which Jesus was born. Uh, what God has done uh, with that little prepositional phrase is he's shown us that at a time um, of absolute darkness, of political turmoil, uh, when people thought that you couldn't have a king more evil than Herod the Great, uh, this is when God purposefully and providentially said, now is the time for the Messiah to be born. He picked the worst possible time from our perspective. I mean, a time when politics and, and power was run amok. That's when Jesus was born. It says Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the Hebrew word, means house of bread. He who's the bread of life uh, was born in that little town uh, just a few miles uh, southwest of Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, from the hills of Jerusalem, you can, because I've done it, you can, you can stand on them and look down and see Jer uh, Bethlehem off in the distance. It's just right there. Uh, why in the world would God await uh, till this particular time in history uh, to allow the Christ to be born? Why would he wait for things to be geopolitically so messed up uh, it looked like you couldn't unravel the Gordian knot. Well, what he's going to show, uh, we're going to look at today, is this, this principle is what God is going to teach us. Uh, it's a positive concept, and God reaches down into that geopolitical mess, uh, and he teaches us that in tough times, he, he does a tender thing. In tough times, he does a tender thing. That's the motif of Matthew 2, 1 to 18. That's the motif of that prepositional phrase, that when you, when you thought all hope was lost, uh, and the light of truth was just about out, uh, God looks at the Son of God and says to him in heaven, Son, now is the time for you to be born. It's perfect in, during the time of Herod uh, in his rule. So what we would need to do, and we're going to do it uh, for the next couple Sundays until Christmas, I started a series, um, I always do a series at Christmas. I started a series back in 2014. Uh, it was a study of characters, of comparison contrast. Uh, and I'm going to return back to that and add to that because we covered like uh, Caesar, Augustus, and Jesus, and uh, Zacharias, and, and different people. But we're going to add to that because there's more characters of Christmas. Today we're going to be looking at Herod. Uh, next week we'll change and look at somebody else that pertains to this story. But to understand that the way God works in tough times, uh, it, you have to look at Herod as he is contrasted with Jesus. Now, why in the world would God do this? So if you if you go to a jeweler and you want to buy a really nice diamond. Uh, and you don't just buy something that's just already uh, set in a, in a, in a, a stone in a ring. Uh, he's going to pull out a black of, piece of black velvet, and he's going to roll the stone that you might potentially buy onto that. For what purpose? Contrast. He wants you to show this ultimate black and show you the brilliance of this stone. So as we look at uh, this particular passage, um, I'm going to go through some of the historical information that we know from Josephus and from the scriptures about Herod. Herod's going to be the black velvet. And so don't stop me or email me and say, why in the world do we have to look at the black velvet? You have to. Remember the prepositional phrase? Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the time of Herod. You have to understand that. A lot of people don't understand the, the time in which Jesus was born. He's the black velvet. Who's the diamond? Jesus is the diamond. So what does God do? He waits till it gets completely black geopolitically and spiritually. And then that's when he drops the diamond of the Son of God. So we'll, we'll look at the black velvet in our first point, Exhibit A, Herod, Herod the King. And then we'll look at Jesus the diamond later. Uh, about 1 o'clock we'll get there. We'll look at him, the brilliance of Jesus against the black velvet. So let's look at the black velvet uh, of, of the Herodian Empire. Uh, exhibit 1, Herod. Uh, he had a father. And it's kind of like, 
like father, like son. His father was Antipater. He was an Idumean uh, from the land of uh, Edom, which was south of Israel. They were enemies. Uh, when the Hasmoneans, which uh, came out from the Maccabean Empire, who overthrew the Seleucids, if you read uh, uh, world history, when the Jews rose to power under Judas Maccabeus and overthrew the Seleucid Empire, the Syrians north of them, um, uh, Antipater eventually came to the scene, but his country, the Edomites, were taken over by the Hasmoneans, the Jews. And so they were made Jews. I mean, it's either you become a Jew by practice or we eliminate you. And so they became Jews. They embraced Judaism, but they weren't by means of heredity Jews. So the Jews looked upon a, an, an Edomian as a half-breed. That was the father of, Antip of uh, Herod the Great was Antipater. Um, he's going to set the pace for his son. His son Herod is going to watch him in action and learn how to be a king or how not to be a king. Uh, Julius Caesar defeated General Pompey uh, in Egypt, and, and Antipater, uh, the Herod's father, uh, was strategically related to Pompey, General Pompey. He liked him, but when he saw that Julius Caesar was going to defeat Pompey, guess what he did? Well, he switched who he was uh, aligned with. He, he left his friend behind, and he embraces Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar then rises to the scene, uh, and in 44 BC, he makes uh, Herod not only procurator of Judea, but he makes him a full-fledged Roman citizen. In 43 B.C., remember we're looking at the black velvet? You still with me? Are you still with me? What is he talking about? Uh, we're talking about Herod's father, because Herod's going to be a lot like his father. His father Antipater then turns in 43 B.C., uh, and he makes uh, his, one of his sons, Phazael, governor of Jerusalem, but he makes Herod... Uh, he makes him the governor of Galilee, where Jesus is going to do much of his ministry. Herod is the governor of that area, or a Roman term was a procurator. Herod got his first taste of dynastic power in Galilee. Uh, Antigonus uh, was the, a Jew of, of uh, Hasmonean royal lineage. He besieged Jerusalem in 40 BC uh, with the help of the Parthians, and the Parthians were basically from ancient Iran, that area. They teamed up with uh, Antigonus, the Jewish Hasmonean, to overthrow Jerusalem. Uh, Herod then fled, uh, remember he's in Israel, he flees, flees to Rome, but not before he took his second wife, uh, Mary Amni, and puts her in uh, the Masada Fortress, where we take people when we go to Israel. He put her there for safekeeping while he fled to Rome. While he was in Rome, um, General Mark Antony, uh, General Octavian, who's going to become Augustus Caesar, uh, and the Senate declared Herod the king of the Jews. Was he the king? No. Not by God's standard, as we're going to see when we look at Jesus. But he became the rightful heir, uh, heir, uh, uh, king of the Jews, according to the Romans. Uh, the, they gave him military support. So Herod goes back uh, and besieges uh, Jerusalem in 37 uh, B.C. and defeats them, Antigonus. And he eliminates Antigonus, the Hasmonean king, who also thought, also thought he was a priest. He eliminates his opposition. So this begins the rule of Herod. So his rule is divided into three quadrants. Number one, remember we're looking at the black velvet to contrast this against Jesus. Uh, from 37 B.C. to 26 B.C. Is, is movement number one of his life. What does he do in that, in that period of time, 37 B.C. to 26 B.C.? He liquidates his, his uh, opposition. He takes the 45 most prominent wealthy people in Jerusalem and, and gets rid of them because they might challenge his rule. He didn't win any friends with that. Then he makes a strategic marriage to Mary Amni I, the royal granddaughter of Phycranus, 
who's the high priest, Hycrenus II, uh, to try to win the allegiance of Jews because, remember, he's not really a Jew. So he's, everything with him is strategic. Eliminates his opposition, makes a marriage to tie in the Jews through Mary Amney, his second wife. By the way, she's one of ten wives that he has. So when you look at his life and study it in detail, um, his wives constantly are fighting with their sons to be the king. It's the ultimate dysfunctional family, as we're going to see. 35 BC, immediately after her, uh, Mary Amney, his wife, her brother Aristobulus, he officiated uh, as the high priest uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. People loved him. They could see the Hasmonean power come, to back, come back. Uh, Herod saw, uh, well, someone vying for his throne. So what would you do if you were Herod? Eliminate your opposition. And he did. Imagine, this is your wife's brother. Meant nothing to Herod. Got rid of him. In 32 BC, civil war erupts between Octavian, who's going to be Caesar Augustus, and Herod's best friend, Mark Antony. Uh, in 31 BC, at the Battle of Actium in the Ionian Sea off of Greece, Octavian defeats Antony, who flees to Egypt to be with his lover, Cleopatra. Herod sees the situation like his father did, and he deserts his friend Mark Antony and places his allegiance with Octavian, who becomes Caesar Augustus. In 27 BC, Caesar Augustus becomes who he claimed to be and establishes the, the Imperial Roman Empire. Uh, and uh, Herod responds by uh, eliminating his wife's grandfather, the priest, to consolidate his power. 29 BC, he takes his wife, Mary Amney, uh, and he, he goes to Rome. And while he goes to Rome, he tells one of his trusted uh, men, uh, if something fishy happens while I'm gone, eliminate her. Well, it was, it was said that uh, when he was gone to Rome that she had an affair with one of his, uh, uh, his people, uh, and he didn't really get into the facts too much. He just eliminated his wife. Imagine, this is the reign under which Jesus is born. Remember I told you it's black velvet? Indeed it is. She had two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. How do you think you as a son would feel if your dad took out your mother? Unbelievable. 29 BC, he, uh, he took out his wife. From 25 uh, BC to 14 BC was the second movement of his life. A uh, lot of building campaigns. He was an amazing builder. Uh, he built uh, Caesarea Maritima. Uh, if you've gone with me to Israel, it's one of the first places that we go. Day number one, you're on the coast, huge Herodian amphitheater looking at the ocean. Barbara Streisand still does uh, concerts there. It seats four or 5,000 people. This is where Paul was put on trial as he stood uh, on the, the stone of uh, condemnation. Uh, he stood there with the ocean to his back. Uh, Herod built a huge hippodrome there, a racetrack. Uh, he built an aqueduct growing across the desert all the way 20 miles up uh, to the Carmel Hills to bring water by gravity uh, feeding all the way to Caesarea, also to fill his swimming pool that he built out into the ocean. It's unbelievable. That's where Paul was eventually put under house arrest. He built many things, but nothing uh, stood in comparison to the temple in Jerusalem. Unbelievable. And George, I know you've been with me back in February, but if you go down underneath the, 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 the wailing wall of what's left of the Herodian uh, temple and you go down below that, you see those huge Herodian stones that are carved that weighed 40 to 60 tons per stone and are so precisely put together, you can't even insert a piece of paper in between them. Unbelievable things that he did. But that's 25 to 14 B.C., uh, from 14 BC to 4 BC, his kingdom was racked with instability and complete intrigue. Remember how many wives did he have? Ten. What did each one of them basically want? Power. Their son to be king. 
their son to be king. Uh, Herod had a sister, Salome. She got into the act, too, because she wanted her son to be the king, in addition to the ten wives who wanted their sons to be king. And uh, so she didn't like uh, Mariamne's sons, Aristobulus and Alexander, uh, because, you know, they had the Hasmonean blood about them. So she didn't like them. She wanted her son to replace them. But she pitted those, those sons against their father and their father against those two sons. Constant infighting. His firstborn son uh, to his first wife, Doris, uh, his name was Antipater, just like his father. Uh, he had been placed into exile by his father, Herod. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but when his, his sister started passing around all kinds of garbage about these two Hasmonean sons, uh, he brought Antipater out of exile, rewrote his will a second time to make him the head of the will, to make him the ruler that we replace him. Uh, this didn't bode well. Huge family argument. So he wrote his will, rewrote the third time, added his two Hasmonean sons, Alexander and Rissabolus, back into his will. And then his sister continued to talk. And in 11 BC, uh, Antipater... Uh, was energized by the slanderous words of Herod's sister. And in 7 BC, uh, Herod couldn't really figure out were his two sons trying to overthrow his throne or not. So what did he do in Herodian style? Got rid of his two sons. This is an evil man. You know, they say that uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Indeed it does. It's true then, true today. And to think that all of this occurred, remember what were we looking at? black velvet, all of that evil, that's when Jesus was born. Right at the end of Herod's third phase of his empire, right at the end of that, according to one of my former professors, who was, he's now deceased, but was that in his day and age, one of the leading authorities in the chronological structure of Christ's life. I think that was his dissertation. It's a book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. Dr. Harold Honer wrote the book. And in that, he, 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 amasses all the scholastic evidence as to why Christ was born around 5 BC. Herod died in 4 BC. So right before the death of Herod is when the father looks down from heaven and tells the son, what? Son, I know this is evil. This man is evil. It's a geopolitically, it couldn't be more messed up down there, but this is the perfect time for you to be born. You are the true king of kings. It's amazing. Now we're into Matthew chapter 2, because what do we learn there? Well, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king, behold, what happened? Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, "Uh, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod uh, Herod the king heard this, he was what? Ecstatic? Troubled. Troubled. He's an old man now in his early 70s. He hates any kind of person messing with his possible rule and reign over his empire. So he hears this and he thinks to himself, oh, someone else to take my throne from me? What does he do? Well, we read. He tries to find out when was he born? Where was he born? Verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Messiah, the Christ, was to be born. And they said to him, We can quote from Micah 5, chapter 2, and tell you exactly where the prophet said 700 years ago where he would be born. By the way, don't don't tell me the Bible doesn't have prophetic significance. It's the reason why I believe the Bible is the word of God. 700 years prior to the birth of Christ, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, says he will be born exactly in this city when he's born. So they quoted. They opened the scroll. and We could tell you exactly where he's going to be born. What did they say? And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet. 
And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod uh, knew who to talk to, didn't he, when he had a theological question. Uh, could you tell me, where's the Messiah going to be born? I would, love to come and, uh, I would love to come and worship him. That's what we find in verse 7 and following. Herod secretly called the Magi, and he ascertained the time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, uh, and he said, Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I might come in. I just want to worship him. If, he, if he's a true king of the Jews... If he's the Messiah that's been prophesied for hundreds of years, I can't miss this opportunity. But please tell me where he is, and I'll, I'll come and worship him. Did he have any intention of worshiping him? No. See, Herod, this is a whole other study. Herod is like the Antichrist. He's a liar, just like Satan's a liar. And he wants worship of himself, not the worship of the Christ child. God, however, had complete control of the situation, didn't he? Verse 9. Remember, God has total control. His, his goal is to bring his tender son to earth to be the king of kings. It says, after, after have, and having heard the king in verse 9, they went on their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and it stood over where the Christ child was. Now, we have to stop here for just a minute because I was reading a whole bunch of articles this week on uh, the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, and it's the, it's the Christmas star. Have you seen this? I mean, this hasn't happened since... Uh, March the 4th, 1226 B.C., and the other time that it happened before was 7 B.C. So everybody's saying, you know, based upon what Kepler, the astronomer, said years ago, that uh, the alignment of Jupiter and Saturn, uh, that must have been the Christmas star. That's a whole other study. I, I did it a couple years ago uh, to show you why that's not the Christmas star. It's an amazing celestial thing, but when you talk about the Christmas star, it's guiding them to where Jesus is. So just to recap what I covered several years ago, this was, in my estimation, a hole in the cosmos of God's dimension where his Shekinah glory shines through, and he allows that Shekinah glory and that hole in our dimensionality to shine forth and guide those magi right to the place of Christ. It wasn't a star, per se. It was the brilliance of the glory of God that shone over his son said, there he is. Back to my sermon. Uh, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, wouldn't you? And, and they came in, into the house and they saw the child, the child, par excellence use of the article, monadic use of the article, the one and the only. There's nothing like it. He's the child with Mary, his mother. And what did they do? They fell down and they worshiped him. And opening their treasures and presenting them to him gifts of gold, because he's a king, frankincense and myrrh, and having warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, what'd they do? Go back to Ter Herod? <laughs> no. See how easy God overturned the, 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 the designs of an evil, power-hungry man, a professional politician. God said, I don't care what you've done in your lifetime. You're not going to outfox me. That's my son. That's the Messiah. He's going to be the true king of kings. And I'll just let these magi know what your plans are. And so God tells them what their plans, and so they head in another direction. Verse 13 says, Now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Here's some advice. Arise, take the child and his mother, flee where? Egypt. Egypt. And remain there till I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Why? Because the devil doesn't want the Christ child born. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod, and, uh, that was, so that it was spoken uh, through the Lord the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt did I call my son. See, God gives the Magi special revelation to get out of Dodge 
and trumps what the politician's trying to do. And then he tells Joseph, hey, you need to listen to me. You need to head down to Egypt. That will also bring you safety. That will also help you fulfill Hosea 11, verse 1, that the Messiah would come out of Egypt. This is a whole other study. I think I might even do this next year. Uh, when the Messiah comes out of Egypt, he's the new Moses. He's the new deliverer. He's, he's the one who's going to bring Israel salvation on a scale way beyond what Moses did. So when Herod saw that the, he'd been tricked by the Magi in verse 16, he became very enraged. Why? Because he always got his way. He sent and he slew all the male children in Bethlehem and all the environs, two years old and under, to make sure he got the Christ. According to the time which he had ascertained by the Magi. He's an evil man, isn't he? I mean, God helped the leader that takes out little children for power. And God says, uh, I'll remember that. Imagine it was about a year later he died. He died. Do you know that when he died and they buried him in the Hippodrome, he gave orders to execute Antipater, his firstborn son? That's how evil he was. And that's exactly what happened. About that time was when Jesus was born. And God says, at the most unbelievably complex time, I'm going to allow my son to be born to bring light and hope to the world. This tender little child is going to be triumphant because he's the true king of kings. It's not Herod. Exhibit number two, we're going to look at the brilliance of the diamond. Jesus, King Jesus, as opposed to King Herod. What do the scriptures tell us about King Jesus? Uh, Genesis 49, verses 8 to 12, tells us uh, what tribe he comes from. J Jacob, speaking to his sons, giving them prophetic words concerning each one of them, says to the tribe of Judah, who is Judah? Judah is a lion's whelp. Uh, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He, he crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter, rulership, kingship, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until who comes? Shiloh comes. What will he do? To him shall be the obedience of the peoples of the planet. Translated, when Shiloh comes through the tribe of Judah, he will create peace on the planet. Because he's the true king of kings. Uh, the word Shiloh in Hebrew is uh, correctly, in my estimation, translated by the NIV, uh, is translated until he who comes to whom it belongs. What belongs? The kingdom. It didn't belong to Herod. It belonged to the child that will come through the tribe of Judah, Jesus the Messiah. Second Samuel chapter 7, God uh, gives us uh, more revelatory information about the Messiah. He gives us a covenant, a Davidic covenant with David. He tells him, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Uh, see, the establishment of the Davidic empire wasn't based on man's activity, but God's word. He says, he shall build my house for my name, uh, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. I will be a father to him. He'll be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, which Solomon did, um, I will correct him with the rod of men and strokes of the son of men. But notice, the sin of Solomon is not going to abrogate God's promise to bring the king, the ultimate king. He says, my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house, your Davidic house, and your Davidic kingdom shall endure with me for how long? Forever. And your throne shall be established forever. He's now told you multiple times, the kingdom is dependent on God's very character. When Jesus came, what tribe was he from? Judah. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. Uh, what family lineage was he from? Davidic. All you have to do is go back and read uh, Matthew chapter 1 to see that he's related 
uh, to the Davidic line on both sides of his family. His uh, f son Solomon, David's son Solomon, uh, was promised a number of things, that he would build the temple of God, he did, uh, that his throne would be established forever, it was, because it was not based on Solomon, but on God, uh, and that he would be disciplined for sin if he did disobey God, and God did discipline Solomon. But the relationship uh, between God and, and the king uh, is airtight because the true king of kings who can make the kingdom last forever is none other than Christ, the one who lives forever. Daniel uh, tells us uh, further information from God. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar uh, sees a, a vast image of empires. Uh, and he has shown an amazing prophecy in Daniel 2 of, of the images of the, the vast empire, that he's the head of gold. And he's, God's going to tell him, uh, as world history descends down toward the coming of the Christ, uh, it's going to uh, disintegrate in, in the quality of the politicians. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're, you're, you're like the gold. But when you get down to the, the iron of the feet mixed with clay, when you get down to the Roman Empire, when you get down to the revived Roman Empire, because Rome was never composed of iron mixed with clay of a ten-nation confederacy, that's in the future. He says, when you get to that point where you have politicians worried about absolute raw power and nothing else, but they're extremely brittle, one day I'm going to deal with all political systems when my king comes, the Messiah. Verse 44 of Daniel 2, God says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Which kingdom? The Davidic kingdom, which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to end all kingdoms, but it itself will rule and endure for how long? Well, forever. See, when Jesus was born against the backdrop of the Herodian Empire, Herod thought he was the king of kings. God's looking down from heaven and going, No, you got it all wrong. Wrong bloodline. Wrong tribe. The king was born in that little stable. His name was Jesus, the Messiah. What kind of king would he be? I'll give you a, a brief perusal of the prophets, what they say about the Messiah. Isaiah 2.3 says that when the king comes, the Messiah, he will love law and order. Isaiah 2.4, when the true king comes, he brings shalom, true peace. Uh, any politician today that tells you they can bring peace to our country, that's a lie. They cannot. Because sin abounds. Peace only comes through the Messiah's hand. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 3 to 5, says that when the Messiah comes, he will be the true and the righteous judge. No one can buy him off. You cannot bribe him. He has all the facts. Uh, notice Isaiah chapter 42, the great servant song about the Messiah. Uh, prophesies this concerning him. Verse 1. Behold, God says, my servant, the Messiah, his son. Whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. God says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The very thing lacking in our world today, justice. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. He's not all about himself. He's not rude. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He tells you twice he'll bring forth justice. But what's it tell you about his character? Well, he will take people who are just about to have their wick put out. I mean, people that have great needs, and he will show compassion for them. Again, the very thing missing in our world today from leaders is compassion. Compassion for the less fortunate. See, when the Messiah comes to establish that Davidic empire, he will come and, and take care of people who have the greatest needs among us, and he will show love and compassion for them. And you got a taste of it when you read the Gospels and you see Jesus in action on a daily basis, right? 
he stopped to care for the lowly of the lowest. What's the most sung Christmas carol at Christmas? Do you know? Trivia time. No. No. Joy to the world. Wait, did you talk to God or something? Or, Yeah, joy to the world. That is the most sung one. I, I did a little study on it. Uh, I like the verse that says this. He rules, the, uh, he rules the world with what? Truth and grace. And he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Isn't it amazing? What does God tell us in this Christmas season? At an extremely difficult geopolitical time, and it is, in my estimation, the most complex geopolitical time I have ever seen in my lifetime. To where you look at it and you think, it looks like all hope is lost. God looks down from heaven. What does he say? I do my best work in tough times through the tender Savior. And why do we sing joy to the world? Because we who know that tender Savior have that joy, have that hope that the King is coming. Let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, just for the, wow, Scripture's just honest. It's, uh, that's how we know it's from you. you. You don't keep anything from us. You tell us uh, just life in the raw, like with Herod's life. But then you contrast that with the life of your son. How, how can anybody not see the brilliance of the birth of the Christ child? Uh, we who know you worship you because of what the facts say concerning your birth, your life, your resurrection. Thank you for the hope that you give us. Uh, and we, we look forward to the hope that comes when you come. And may we live throughout this Christmas season being bearers of the great life at a completely difficult time in our country. Might we exude hope, not despair. And we thank you for who you are and the gospel that we have. And if anybody is with us today uh, online or in our, in our church body and doesn't have the hope of the Christ, might this be the day they bow their knee as the Magi's did before you and worship you as King of Kings. Amen.